We are here in the 11FS office in London for episode 123 of Blockchain Insider. That's a real episode number. The weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you A16Z is still bullish on crypto, the Brave browser hits 1.0, and Britcoin. Why should the UK have its own cryptocurrency? All this and much, much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by the returning Aman Coley. How are you doing, Aman? Hey, I'm great. And you are CTO of Banking and Cap Markets for the UK and Ireland in DXC. Yes, and uh, we're doing a lot of interesting work with financial services clients here. And um, we're seeing a lot of interest around some of the topics we're going to be talking about today. Wow, timely, timely. Um, you've been on the show quite a bit recently, just not with me on it. You've been a bit of a regular returning guest. Do you feel feel like you, you know the area? You're going to set up a tent? I, I have to say, it's always a pleasure uh, and a surprise when you guys call me in. Uh-huh. Uh, but the one thing that I guess the behind-the-scenes people don't know, every time uh, you run this, it seems to be somewhere different <laughs> or something's changed. So um, your new digs are absolutely fabulous. Uh, but again, from the last time I was here, something was slightly different. Yeah. Uh, we've got our own sign now. We've got lighting and everything. So uh, you know, if you're watching this on one of our social platforms, uh, then you will see all of that good stuff. Um, before we get into the news, uh, just a quick reminder that 11FS are taking part in the 2020 British Bank Awards. And we need your help to win. Uh, we took home the 2019 Consultancy of the Year earlier this year. And... We'd love to get it for another year and uh, running. Not just that, we're also taking part in an all-new category called Pioneer of the Year. Uh, I don't know if that means that we've been digging up gold somewhere in the Old West, but um, whatever it is, we want it. Um, So if you love the work that we do on a serious note, please do head over to bit.ly forward slash 11FS2020 and nominate 11FS for Consultancy and Pioneer Awards. It would absolutely mean the world to us. So if you like this show, you're listening to it, um, bit.ly forward slash 11FS2020. All right, let's get on with the news. First story this week comes from Cointelegraph.com. Andreessen Horowitz leads a $25 million funding round for crypto lending startup. This is, of course, about uh, Compound. Uh, They're a decentralized finance lending protocol. And uh, they're based in San Francisco. And they basically have an automated platform for lending that's predominantly focused historically on large-scale customers, uh, I guess people in the hedge fund space and and others in, in the trading industry of crypto assets. Uh, But they say they've now got over $150 million of assets on their platform, and the fresh $25 million of investment will go towards making the service more accessible to ordinary people. Something interesting. So they're moving lending away from the institutions towards ordinary people. So um, Compound, uh, what did you think when you saw these guys when you first looked into them, Aman? Well, it's it's interesting to see what they're doing, right? So I'm, I'm a big fan of distributed finance. I think it is the way things need to go and the way they're going, which is a big win. Um, And where they're positioned, especially within institutions around the lending space, is uh, a sweet spot because a lot of asset managers and hedge funds want to invest in things. And um, just because of the way traditional capital markets are going, they need to get into these sort of syndicated loan markets and these access to these sorts of things. So doing it in a distributed finance way actually has picked a bit of an industry that isn't as heavily regulated as other bits of it are. Mm. So they've they've spotted a good kind of white space area to play in, and that can be good, right? Um, 
it'll be interesting to see, is this really just a play on uh, the post-crisis peer-to-peer lending platforms, which it won't be, right? Yeah, because it does look and feel a bit peer-to-peer. So for those unfamiliar, um, peer-to-peer lending was essentially, I would, uh, as a as a borrower, go to this platform and essentially I would you know, take take a, take a loan out with this organized, this peer-to-peer lender, it seems like, for a period of time. But on the back end, they've got somebody buying that as an investable asset. And they were sort of matching us up. They were matching those those pools of liquidity. And this feels kind of a bit like that. There's, um, th- there's that happening. So you've got people who want to borrow ETH, and then you've got people who want to lend uh, ETH. And then they're sort of matching the two. And there's a spread then between the uh, the interest I pay as a borrower versus the interest I receive uh, as somebody who's invested. Yeah, and you know, coupled to this as well, we're seeing a lot more institutional exploration. I guess would be the right word uh, within crypto asset investment, and you know, uh, the jury's out on how serious that is and what it's there for. But there certainly is money going that way. Um, I think on the other side of it, you know, for, for the rest of us, what it actually means, if they're used to selling to institutions, that's, you know, in tens if not hundreds of millions of uh, dollars worth of transactions, uh, it, is for the rest of us a sort of uh, Mark Andreessen rest of, rest of us, or is it a man in the street, Jeremy Corbyn, rest of us. Well, yeah, I think that that rest of us rhetoric has been there around crypto for quite some time in that this would be a great democratizing force, that it would open up access to borrowing and to capital um, to people at the last mile. But actually, overwhelmingly, the people that have accessed crypto assets and in the financial market sense have been hedge funds. And it's been people who understand financial services and, and have that background. And also, maybe a new class of investor, which is the technically sophisticated who happened to get into crypto early and now has 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 a ton of liquidity to play with. Yeah, I I think as an asset class absolutely, but certainly as a payment rail, uh crypto has really shown itself to be valuable to those countries that don't uh allow easy access to money. Can you give me an example? So, um I was first introduced to Bitcoin uh by a friend of mine in Dublin. He was a Venezuelan and he would remit money home mm-hmm. through Bitcoin. Uh, because they had tight currency controls. It was around the time of Chavez, so money was very carefully watched. And what this would allow it to do, it would allow his family to, you know, buy their staples, pay for the rent, do whatever they needed to do. And if you see a lot of um, South American and Asian countries are actually using uh, these rails for that. But it's not officially using them. This is actually going around. So this is circumventing the currency controls even yeah. with a humanitarian lens. But how much how much volume is really going through this stuff versus other ways of circumventing those controls? Well, it, it's like any of these things, right? So there's volume and value. Right? Yeah. So so the impact on a hundred families doing this is quite important uh, versus you know a hedge fund millionaire putting ten million dollars through Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. That's one transaction, and he's bet it all on black, so to speak. But the utility on the other side is quite – it's there. I don't think in those countries, though, it's reached a critical mass to allow a complete circumvention of the monetary system, which is probably a good thing or a bad thing. I'm not sure yet. I think we're going to talk about that later. 
Yeah, sure. So if you have a look at, at compound.finance, I don't know if you're commuting right now, they have a really interesting um, markets page where they talk about the gross supply versus the gross borrow. And it seems to me that ETH is definitely the, the largest market. But uh, USDC, a US dollar token from, I think it's Circle, makes up 25% of their market volume over the last 24 hours. Now, we're talking about a market volume of uh, $3 million over the last 24 hours. So these, compared to you know, global financial markets are not massive amounts of money by by any stretch. But you know, Andreessen Horowitz have one heck of a track record when it comes to investing ahead of the curve and sometimes being a contrarian investor. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think in a lot of ways uh, where A16Z tends to invest, it is along those lines. They they do see the long game and they do see how it goes. But equally, they're willing to let investments go bad or good. But they they let companies figure out what they're doing. Do you think, though, there's some um, tech utopianism, West Coast tech learning about financial services here? Or is there actually something about um, the possibility of of not having those biases, not having those constraints of the way we used to do it that, that could be creative and interesting? So I think where we are right now in the industry, right, we, we have over 10 years of fintech in the large, you know, and your wonderful movie from 11FS shows that, that um, tech gets it now, right? I, th- I think we're beyond tech naivety mm-hmm. in terms of, oh, you can't do that with finance or that's a restraining man. Mm-hmm. I think we're well beyond those phases. And, you know, one of my favorite podcasts is actually the podcast that come out of um, A16Z and um, they understand it, right? And they do understand it to, to a large degree. You know, we're we're talking uh, MBA uh, heartland here. Yeah. You know, this this isn't staffed by hippie programmers who dropped out of high school to program. I mean, this uh, these are sort of uh, Columbia, Stanford MBAs who understand markets and have been around the block. Mm, interesting stuff. Well, we'll come back to A16Z a bit later. Next story comes from The Telegraph, and uh, the headline here is is uh, quite interesting. So The Telegraph, if you're not from the UK, is one of the major you know, newspapers here. Um, and it says, here's why the UK should launch its own cryptocurrency. Interesting choice of the word cryptocurrency. Apparently, the new governor of the Bank of England should make it a priority to launch Britcoin before it's too late. Um, this article highlights that since many central banks have been looking at tokens, Shouldn't the UK be doing so as well? Um, and it also argues that the UK isn't an economic powerhouse compared to, say, the Chinese who are looking to develop something like this, or even the US. And it should get moving before the competitors, not after. Um, so, did you see this article? It was written by Matthew Lynn, um, and it was, uh, you know, certainly got uh, got some people talking. Well, it's the most times this week I've certainly visited the Telegraph website. So um, I, I couldn't get by the paywall. However, um, I found a way to read it. Um, oh, you have ways. Th- well, you know, l- l- let's just say browsers enable you to do certain things in different computers. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's been a lot of talk in the last few years about Britain launching its own cryptocurrency, and it's been an area that's been mooted certainly in uh, – pub conversations uh, for the last few years. And the main drivers behind it or concerns behind it is how can uh, we ensure that there's a degree of cyber resiliency and security to the currency and the supply? Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, Britain is one of the most electronic, if not digital, uh, users of money right now, certainly in Europe, mm-hmm. if not in the world. Like we're, 
we're the top country uh, in Europe that does e-commerce transactions, for example. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense for us to go wholly digital and all in. And moving down a cryptocurrency route makes sense. And some of the work the bank has done in the clearing systems around uh, RTGS2 is it does support uh, crypto uh, asset or cryptocurrency termination and uh, settlement in, in the rails. We've seen speeches from the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, it's about, you know, sort of hinting at the idea that they might open up access to real-time gross settlement, that they might open up access to the central bank balance sheet. And those are certainly areas of research for fintech with you know a, a traditional fintech lens. Um, but this, is, this article is quite different. But I think there's a language point here that's really interesting. When, when the author here says cryptocurrency and then what people mean by central bank uh, digital cash, those could be wildly different things. Absolutely. But I think we, we need to also look at uh, where central banks are thinking about this. So um, uh, the central bank governor of Sweden is talking about looking at cryptocurrencies as well because fewer than 10% of transactions are happening in cash now. And there's a real danger that things are going to lose the run of themselves there and they're exploring areas. And similarly here, there has been some thought put in. Um, there have been some prominent e uh, economists that have been looking at this. And we have a natural kind of brain trust here that understands this. So it, it becomes an area, and we've seen it through tokenization, for example, of how can you map something physical to something digital. Mm -hmm. um, and alternatively, would we actually turn all of the money supply into a cryptocurrency that's a reverse token, if you like? So this is the thing. So what problem would that solve is, is the immediate question. Because um, if I've already got like e-money as, as a type of digital cash, if I've already got um, sort of central bank um, deposits that are represented as a balance on a digital system at the Bank of England. What is it? What's different about it existing as a token? Is it opening up who can custody that? Is it opening up who can like what? What's different? The the main difference between say a cryptocurrency and a digital money mechanism or even electronic money is the operations you can do are encapsulated into the currency itself. So it's the programmable. It's the programmable, but that means security access, mm -hmm. right? So um, the great thing about VHS is if you wanted to borrow someone's uh, tape recording of something that happened last night, uh, you would give them the VHS tape and they could do it. The problem with today is I can't forward you a uh, iTunes movie I've rented, mm -hmm. right? Because it's tied in, into some DRM and things like that. You might have to explain what a VHS is to some of the younger listeners, but yeah. we will um, – we will see these uh, elements kind of coming through in money, right? So if you look at Bitcoin or even Ethereum, it comes down to a core set of about 16 or 20 transactions that you can do with money. Mm -hmm. um, and some of that, that is just fundamental move money from A to B. Uh, you can put a little bit of color on that, move money to A to B if this condition is met. So like let's say, for instance, um, if, uh, if a certain type of transaction is taxable, then uh, then it could be taxed as soon as the transaction happens rather than trying to do it as an administrative thing uh, via my accounting package weeks and months later if I remember to capture the receipt because there would be a rule about certain types of transactions that could be baked into doing the transaction itself. And this concept of programmable money has been interesting and around for some time. So could you encapsulate something like that and put it into the very central bank money we have and broaden up access to that? 
it's a question people are playing with. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that that wouldn't be the role of a central bank necessarily. Mm -hmm. A a central bank is really about um, the creation of money, economic stability, and how that money then moves around the economy. But they'd have a convening role in that. And and I'm imagining at some point that would need to talk to a real-time gross settlement system at the bottom of of the stack. Um, But sort of uh, the other thing I hear about a lot is um, kind of the, the... Merchants especially and and businesses talk about the cost of dealing with cards. Um, So increasingly as we're moving into a world of dealing with real-time payments, Visa and MasterCard can make it feel to the consumer like the payments happen in real time. But if you're um, Walgreens, if you're Tesco, whoever you are, you've got to wait the two to three days to actually get that money sitting in, in your bank account. So there's a risk there, and then there's a big cost as well to accepting those payments. Now, it's not that uh, digital currency as a concept by itself necessarily solves all of those things, but um, that it is something that people bring up on a regular basis, and microtransactions are hard, and there's a lot of stuff that the, the cards infrastructure, which is dominant in the West, can't easily facilitate. Yeah, I mean, there's an argument for that. A a lot of what happens around cards right now, and you're kind of seeing it um, more in the open banking circles, is um, cards are pushing for what they call account-to-account settlement. Mm. So this is more for business-to-business flows, not necessarily consumer-to-business. But we're beginning to see more consumer flows to business becoming account-to-account. So that's moving in the back end, not coming through cards rails. So it's interesting how that account-to-account conversation starts to merge in with this sort of um, yeah. what is a central bank digital currency. They're sort of the same conversation, but one the, the central bank digital currency one feels triggered more by Libra and then the Chinese response to Libra, um, I, I would argue, which is their, their central bank digital currency efforts. Although maybe that was more of a response to um, Tencent and, and Ali and others yeah. having, having a position in the market that they did. Yeah, you know, there's been much talk about Britain looking at cryptocurrencies for a while, well before Libra as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the other thing that's happening within payments in general, we're seeing a greater move to instant payments. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we have SEP Instant in Europe. There's work happening here in the UK to reduce the kind of uh, settlement cycles for that. Um, But the other side of it, sometimes you don't actually want an instant payment. You do need an air gap between saying you pay someone and then having a period of remorse, I guess, uh, to, uh, to... or cooling off yes. to allow that to happen. There, there's a time when instance is great, and there's a time when it's not so great. So uh, you know. There are things that can go wrong with a payment, and actually having it be irrevocable. There is a school of thought that says uh, push payments are fine. If I push money at you and I got it wrong, then it's my dumb fault and tough you out of luck. But actually, for most of society, that that doesn't tend to work. Uh, so there's there's just uh, trying to put those pieces together. Um, I guess though you mentioned something interesting earlier. You said um, sort of operational resilience. Uh, why it's interesting that from a central bank perspective, they they have a role of looking at, and that's a, that's a loaded term. But they used to think about resilience of banks post financial crisis very much as being you know does it have enough money? Does it have enough liquidity? But increasingly, it's you know. Are they thinking about cybersecurity properly? Are they thinking about other things? So does this, uh, is it? Is there something around operational resilience and, and uh, the resilience of financial markets? Very much so. So um, the advantage of a distributed finance uh, protocol is you're not reliant on one computer connected to another, no matter how graceful that connection is and how many redundant wires you have between it. Um, and by doing so, it means if you have a catastrophic event or an unplanned event, you can still function 
as a uh, economy buying and selling things. And you know this this is a nation of traders. This is a nation of markets, and it's important that those are always available. Absolutely. There was a story um, along those lines where the U.S. Federal Reserve has actually said stable coins, stable coins um, could wreck global finance um, if they were left unchecked um, and potentially cause a run on the banks and a flight of deposits um, away from banks because, um, because commercial banks play an important role in society in that they lend. Um, they, they actually have the ability to create money to lend as well, which is different to what we're seeing in compound finance. Compound finance is existing capital, existing ap- assets are being lent rather than new assets are being created out of thin air to lend. Now, if you're a maximalist or a purist, you would say, well, that is the problem with the economy is the creation of new money. But I'm guessing not everybody feels that way. Yeah, n- not necessarily, right? So, you know, we're, we're in a realm right now where there's a lot of regulation hitting financial institutions, especially lending ones. So the amount of capital that's available is significantly reduced. If you look at other sort of uh, boring accounting changes that are happening to banks, especially the more uh, significant ones, it's having such a constraint on what they can do and also how they can do it that you know we don't need any more constraints hitting the market that's going to reduce that. What I thought was interesting about this Fed report was they actually condensed into a single document all of their concerns and the steps required to prevent a stablecoin catastrophe. This is really interesting. So the, the report says things like issuers must disclose how their staking mechanism works. Okay, fine. Disclose what you're doing. Um, go check out GitHub, guys. Um, issuers must protect um, customer privacy while maintaining KYC records to prevent illicit use. Uh, issuers must disclose their terms of services and they must inform uh, customers if they have any rights to the underlying asset. And and again, I think the key worry here is that um, the, if something went wrong with the way the stablecoin works, be it with the operations, the liquidity, or the credit, they're saying that confidence could be shattered. And somebody like a Facebook could create something so massive, given their scale, that confidence in that thing falling apart could be uh, could be really dangerous. Yeah. And and. That is a genuine concern with all of this. Um, again, post, post-crisis, there was a l- big problem that large corporations suddenly contained a lot of cash that they weren't spending. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of push on them to start spending their cash. And I, th- I think what we're seeing here as well is the concerns raised by the Fed are, are relevant. And, um, you know, one is tying to the, okay, how do you make this money available? How do you make sure it just doesn't disappear behind digital uh, walls so you can't get access to it? But equally, the other thing around KYC is interesting and also tied to the um, uh, Bitcoin uh, story is identity. You know, we need to think about identity first and how do we create a distributed identity system that works. Oh, well, this is a whole, we're going to have to do a specialist show on identity because uh, I've been speaking to so many people who say that, uh, well, I mean, it, it, probably Dave Birch is the originator. He, he's been saying for more than 15 years, identity is the new money. But the the definition of identity is, is probably the biggest thing that changed there was when MIT and uh, a bunch of academics came to, came out with the Windover principles in 2012, which said um, that there is a concept of self-sovereign identity. The concept of identity in, in kind of the sovereign world, in the world of countries, is a country gives you a passport and you are a citizen of 
of that country, therefore you have an identity. Whereas self-sovereign identity says um, you you have an identity, we just have to collect enough data about you to figure out what makes you unique and what persists to be unique about you. And then against that, we can ascribe some attributes and then think about uh, how we manage your privacy. And those two things always seem to be uh, at, at the opposite end of a spectrum, but actually somewhere in the middle of those two ideas, there is there is something interesting to play with. And then every time I speak to somebody who looks at payments that's really, really been playing with identity, they realize that really solving for identity is solving for payments. It It is, because it, it, it solves for a couple of problems. So uh, the initiative that's happening around P27 uh, P27? So P27 is a uh, intra-country, uh, intra-bank payment system uh, being set up in what we call the Nordics. Um, so it's multi-currency. So it, it deals with the local currencies as well as euro. And it's a cross-border payment system. And they've tied identity and built that into it from the mm. very beginning. And, you know, there's, I guess there, there are other schools of thought on where does regulation lie in terms of identity. Financial services is really weird. Uh, certainly in the consumer space, where an entity like a bank is suddenly asked to police what's happening. Mm -hmm. Everywhere else, the police are asked to police what's happening. So when I go and buy a car, I don't have to prove I have a driver's license. Whenever I've bought a car, I've never even had to show my driver's license. Yeah. Right? I don't have to prove to anyone I put my seatbelt on. I don't have to prove to anyone. By the way, I do all these things, right? Yeah, just, uh, you're a reckless human being. You, you know, I, I don't even have to prove I drive looking forward, right? But... It, it's left to the public thoroughfares and the public pipes to be regulated to do that. Banks are the police of money, and it's and I think that that's predicated on. And we talked about this on a lot on the last show. It's predicated on um, sort of having your underlying identity, and we think that will change. Listen, we could talk all about that for for a long time, but I've got to get to a quick ad read. And uh, this show is brought to you by R three, uh, developed by R three Corda is known for its enterprise grace privacy, security, scalability, and interoperability. As you can tell, it has many abilities. Uh, and because Corda was built to meet the stringent requirements of highly regulated industries, in particular financial services, it can be used by firms of any type, size, or industry. Uh, with Corda, every business in every industry can leverage their power of blockchain ability. Uh, free trial of Corda Enterprise Ability is now available at r3.com. Uh, head over to check it out, and shout out to Todd McDonald, friend of the show. Alrighty, on with the show. Uh, next story comes from The Register, and uh, typical for The Register, if you've not come across them as, as an outlet, they have a great headline. Headline reads, Like a bat out of hell, Brave Browser hits 1.0 with crypto coin rewards for your favorite websites. Um, which does a pretty good job of summing it up, actually. But uh, Brave, of course, is a browser competing with Firefox and Chrome and uh, Safari and whatever browser you use. And it claims it's between three to six times faster than other browsers. Uh, they have about 7 million active users now. Um, and uh, you know they seem to be popping up. Um, what I've noticed with Brave, and I don't know about you, man, is that people come up to me every now and then and go, oh, have you heard of this new browser, Brave? Yeah, it's really good for privacy. I work in a very different environment, but yeah, yeah, that, that happens to me outside of uh, work environments. And the thing about Brave is it's dealing with this issue of privacy head on. You know, we've, we've seen it being dealt with in other browsers kind of as side issues. And, you know, very respectfully, they're, they're doing what they can. But they've built this in ground up. 
Because um, it's a team it. of former Mozilla folks that have sort yeah. of splintered off to go build a new browser. And so it's interesting that they've kind of built it to prevent tracking and sort of the whole do not track thing has gone to a whole nother level with these guys. Um, and there's a few other interesting bits, but they've you know, we haven't seen a new browser in quite some time. No, we haven't. And it's it's always good when something that you consider stable has some innovation around it. Mm-hmm. Um, it always brings a new way of doing things uh, there. And again, what what's good about Brave is they're standards-focused, which is great. It's great to be back to standards-focused. We've had a little bit of tweaking uh, with some of the other browsers on that, except for Mozilla, of course, which is wonderfully pure. Um, but then it's it's also building an economic model around advertising that's not toxic for users. And I think that's really different because the the advertising model has been really what the the big tech boom has been built on over the last 20 years. But if you go back to the internet pioneers in the early 90s, they they saw a world of microtransactions and they saw a world of um, money on the internet. And again, it this loops us back nicely to the A16Z Mark Andreessen Netscape story is they could never get money to work on the internet. So it would make a lot of sense that they have some interest. But um, Brave is is another part of that story to me, which is, you know, here's, uh, they've they've got a, a token that they've launched called the Basic Attention Token, the BAT token, hence the headline. And uh, the idea is that you would earn that token for viewing adverts or in the other way around, you could spend that token to have a completely ad-free experience. But ultimately, you as the consumer are much more empowered as you move around the internet. Yeah, and and there's no bad in that, right? Um, But it's an interesting uh, view as to a new type of digital-only asset class because it represents attention online. And that sort of becomes more of a commodity is like, was this ad worth paying for? So there's some ad tech in there as well. There is. And I think with this approach, it makes it less scattergun. So the approach the kind of the two big advertisers have taken is we have access to hundreds of millions, if not billions of users. Therefore, you just point your advertising machine gun using us, and we'll get you the most reach and mm-hmm. very fancy tools. But what's the efficacy? What is it? And uh, what, what Brave is allowing you to do is to give the control back to the user to a certain degree and get the advertising in a more meaningful way. Is is it is this likely to just be sort of um, a nice footnote in history? Or do you think that, uh, you know, that kind of broader context of people's society's genuine concerns about privacy and advertising and, you know, kind of everything that's tied into that, um, do you think people would be drawn towards Brave as a browser? Or does it do what Firefox did and just kind of move the conversation forward for everybody else to learn from? I think it'll be more of the latter. Uh, The unfortunate thing with privacy is that we haven't been able to, en masse, draw the line between privacy and what we're doing on the internet. You know, Cambridge Analytica happened to Facebook, and in the tech community, in legal communities, it was terrible. The world had ended, but Facebook usership continued. Yeah, share price Facebook users are still growing. Their share price went up. But it, is there a flip, though, um, for, that, that's happened is you don't notice the rot at first. In fact, you see the success for some years after the rot has started to set in. Because the, the Titanic didn't sink as soon as it hit the iceberg. There was like a, a period of time where people thought everything was fine. Like, is that happening here? Or is it just, no, these things are going to be absolutely fine. And um, maybe the big techs will co-opt this rather than uh, rather than be threatened by it. It's interesting to see how Google and Facebook have been dealing with privacy issues. They've been publicly very bullish about privacy. 
But behind the scenes, they have made some changes, but nothing substantial to their business model Mm -hmm. and nothing to actually directly address um, privacy. You know, I want to download my Google data. You know, how much data do you have on me on Google? It's over 11 gig. I don't even know what that is, right? I don't. And it's like, wow, that's phenomenal. Yeah. If I ever have time one day, I'll actually go through it in minutiae and see what it is. But that's something else. I was going to say, though, if you just scroll down in your Gmail, I'm looking at, at one of my Gmail accounts now. There's 17 gig in there. So does it count like, is it just metadata they've got about you? or is it? So that was just the metadata they've got about you. Listeners, you can't hear, but Aman was nodding. I, I was profu- nodding. Nodding yeah, sorry. profusely. Sorry, I, I can verbalize nodding. It's, it's, we can put it out there. All right, next story. Um, actually comes from The Block. Shout out to Mike Dudas, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Swiss Stock Exchange 6 has listed their first income-generating crypto product tied to the Tezos token. So Switzerland's primary stock exchange has listed an income-generating crypto exchange-traded product. So the ETP is tied to the XTZ tokens, and it's issued by fintech firm Amun, not to be confused with Aman, AG. Uh, Coinbase custody will, of course, custody and stake the underlying Tezos tokens in the ETB, and the product is available to both retail and institutional investors. Yeah, I'm, I'm always amazed at how aggressive Six is becoming within this space. Um, this is huge for me. They, they are yeah. a, that that would be like Nasdaq or London Stock Exchange listing and staking like a. a product that was exchange tradable that was based on crypto. Yeah, I mean, uh, Switzerland has been generally very uh, active in terms of its use of cryptocurrencies, Uh, maybe not through official financial channels, but there's been a lot of developers based there. Um, And by the looks of it, it seems that it's it's within its institutions as well. And also with the way, again, capital markets are going, everyone is looking for the next big thing and how can they get more... Uh, attention and volume coming through there, and stocks and shares aren't going to do it. So I was having an interesting chat with um, Jason Bates, um, my co-founder here at 11FS, walking down um, through Moorgate earlier today, and, and we were talking about how um, that you know, the, the move from physical notes and coins and uh, the the feeling of gold in your hands, like so the Bank of England has uh, an exhibit where you can actually go hold a bar of gold, and it's like 13 kilograms. Now, it's behind a cage, but you can feel the weight of it, and how there is a generation for whom the, the confidence comes from being able to, to touch the physical physical thing, and yet how when we observe people who play Fortnite, the most valuable thing in, in their world can be the skin, or it can be you know, a digital good, a world that can never exist in, in the physical world. And increasingly, we're seeing the, the world of things that only exist in the digital realm not only having value, but becoming tradable because they have value. Um, and then the, some of the kind of market structure that needs to sit around that is starting to potentially evolve. It was an interesting hypothesis, if nothing else. But is this, I mean, this feels very much firmly in the experimentation phase. Do you buy that argument that there is a new type of kind of commodity out there, an asset class that big investors will, will want to get access to? Or is this, again, is this still hobbyist? It's more than hobby, but this is very much related to the first story. Yeah. Um, this is really about how do traditional finance rails and capital markets rails figure out how to deal with this. I mean, we've there's still some fundamental issues with cryptocurrencies and crypto asset classes, and that's in quotes. Um, 
in that they're still susceptible to things like pump and dump and mm-hmm. these sort of Ponzi and other sort of Ponzi type schemes and other things that don't make them true asset classes and the way they're generated and the way liquidity is put into them, a whole bunch of reasons, right? However, it's good to see activity in terms of access and making them look and fit into the world as it is li- right now. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of activity as well around the custody side of things and how do you then, what does custody mean in this world? Because it takes on a new definition. You know, you're no longer going through weird sort of corporate action events that you need to correlate. You're now just trying to trigger uh, programmatic events that happen. Yeah, so th- and I think it's important to, to pick that apart because uh, if if I had a, if custodying an asset meant I was kind of holding the legal title on somebody's behalf in, in a street name, so I was, I was holding this effectively document of ownership and, and I had a balance sheet to be able to, to back that up, then all kinds of everything that happened around that asset. So there might be yeah, some some sort of board of directors change on, on a company. So that becomes a corporate action. And we need to make sure that everybody who's got a share can either vote or can... There's all these sorts of things that need to happen around it and creates a ton of admin work. But if, if all of this is now digital rather than digitized, it becomes a different conversation. Very much so. And, you know, other sorts of things. So if the digital asset you're holding is a bond that has a coupon to be paid every six months at a certain rate of interest, providing certain conditions are met, this becomes a lot more sustainable in terms of doing something. But I don't think we're quite seeing that sort of programmability yet. What we're seeing right now with these tokens uh, and this approach is here's a token, a representation of a thing, and we now have a means of passing it around and we now have a means of keeping an eye on it through uh, custody. It'll get interesting once you can kind of build these programmatic engines on top of it. But there's something interesting about um, staking, or in this case, um, baking for for Tezos, which is this idea that the network is secured by, I I put up a stake, and then I'm allowed to validate transactions. It's almost, think about it, I'm sitting there at poker, I'm only allowed to play if if I put put the money forward. And as a result, um, if I'm not doing so honestly, I would eventually lose my my stake because the network has transparency, and it it would see that. And in the game theory keeps the network kind of secure. That's a bastardized version of, of describing how staking works. But at the, the highest level, principally, it's about 80% right. That in itself allows a network to continue running. It creates an economy around it to keep that network up and up and running. That creates something that's investable for investors and, and you can generate returns from it. So there is something interesting about these new ways of funding networks that sort of sit out there. Um, but are they niche over time or is this just showing the way that things will be in the future when real quote-unquote assets come in or digital goods come in or something else comes in? Yeah, I, I think it's more of a stepping stone as opposed to an actual destination right now. Brilliant stuff. All right, stories we didn't have time to cover. Uh, Wall Street Journal, the SEC settlements with some crypto firms are showing cracks. Uh, three firms have missed their investor repayment deadlines. A uh, story from the block, uh, PayPal stops processing Pornhub payments for a model. Uh, could Bitcoin fix this? Who knows? Um, yeah, let's not. Um, and it's time for Twitter of the Week. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. 
This week's Twitter of the Week comes from the one and only uh, Maya Zahavi. Her handle is Mayazi, which is uh, M-A-Y-A-Z-I. And if you're not following Maya, you need to. Um, So she says that dissident tech is evolving into a VC market uh, segment faster than we realize. And she puts a link to unknown.fund. And so unknown.fund, which is an unknown kind of organization, has announced it's going to invest and donate $75 million for the development of ideas of anonymity. Anonymity. There we go. It's hard to say. (laughs) It's it's only a second glass. Uh, Of water, yeah. Um, So this one was interesting um, because, like, that's a chunk of cash. Um, And privacy requires defending, it looks like. Um, That's a a big old chunk of cash. Yeah, it's it's impressive. And uh, I never knew dissident tech was an evolving VC market segment, so great for calling that out. Yeah, Maya has a habit of doing that. Um, Calls out, she's like three years ahead of the rest of the market consistently. Already, uh, hashtag dissident tech was also doing the rounds on crypto Twitter, and mostly in the context of state surveillance. Uh, I think there is something about Brave Browser, uh, everything that's happening with uh, Facebook post Cambridge Analytica, um, and then everything that's happening with kind of Extinction Rebellion. There is something there that's a social movement that's sort of evolving into a tech conversation. Absolutely, and you know, te- tech enables so many things, but right now. It's been funneled by basically very rich people, mm-hmm. uh, targeting very rich people to do things to not very rich people. And um, it's good to see uh, these sort of conversations happening, this sort of drive for anonymity and this sort of push to give people without a voice a voice. You know, we, we kind of forget where we are uh, in that we have a lot of freedoms, mm-hmm. but a lot of countries don't. The people uh, that benefit from this most are the people that probably need it the most. Yeah, indeed. Uh, it causes challenges, but uh, this is the world we live in. All righty. Um, that actually wraps up this week's show. Can you believe it? It's happened quickly. Thank you. Um, just to remind you, listeners, this podcast is made by 11FS, and we are a challenger consultancy working to reshape the fabric of financial services itself by unleashing talent. So do get in touch. Um, Aman, where can people find out more about you? You can find me on Twitter, at A. Coley, um, and it doesn't represent the views of my employer or even me in saner moments. Um, professionally, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, that's that's kind of more grown-up, Amon. Uh-huh. And then my company is DXC.technology, and we're focused on digital transformation and uh, making things uh, work better and smarter. So mm-hmm. love to talk to you. Interesting people. All righty. And then, of course, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter, or you can email me directly, Simon, at 11fs.com. A big thank you, as always, to our amazing production team here at 11fs, producers Laura, Petra, Hannah, Olivia, and, of course, Alex, our superstar editor. Thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye for now.